James Terrence um, kicked it all for us as he uh, opened up Ezra chapter 1, and uh, he, he kind of dipped into mine a little bit. He read uh, through 4, but he, he said he was only preaching verse 1, which he did. So, But a uh, special thanks to, uh, to James as he uh, helped us understand the historical context and the layout of the book of Ezra, uh, where it is in the redemptive plan of God. But he also pointed out how a pagan king was used for the glory of God. And we will see that pagan king again this morning. So we have a great foundation that has been laid in this book of uh, Ezra and likely Nehemiah as we combine these two together uh, over the next uh, several months. So with that in mind, this morning we are going to read Ezra chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 11 is our text this morning. So let's read. Uh, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, every one whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Midrath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to open up your word together. Lord, we thank you for this book of Ezra. And as we uh, begin and go through chapter 1 this morning, would you, by your Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us through this text. And may we ultimately see Christ as the great fulfillment. In his strong and powerful name we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we kind of work our way through, uh, through verses 2 through 11 here, uh, there are three overarching observations of this passage that I would like us to notice and work through together. Uh, they are this. I'll give them to you uh, for those who are note takers. Uh, first is that God has a command over rulers. God has a command over rulers. Second, God issued a call to rebuild. He's issued a call to rebuild And we know it's the temple in Jerusalem. And thirdly, God provided his people a chance to return. So we're going to see God's sovereignty over the nations. We're going to see his call to rebuild. And then we're going to see the return of his people to Jerusalem as we set up uh, this, this book of Ezra this morning. 
So as we go back to this first verse in verse 2, where it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So what our first observation this morning is that God has a command over rulers, not just the rulers of the Old Testament, not just the rulers of the ancient world, uh, not just Christian rulers, but all rulers throughout all of history. Now, if you were just to read verse 2, it seems almost like a, uh, an, a Jewish king is speaking or a Christian ruler is speaking of some sort, someone who has looked to the Lord and trusted him. But as James helped us understand last week, Cyrus is not that. He is the pagan king of Persia. And if you will, we'll call this the Persian paradox. There are at least there are many reasons, but I'm going to give you three reasons that it doesn't make any sense that Cyrus would say what he said. That he would look to the Lord and say, the Lord, the God of heaven. There is no doubt whom, whom he is speaking about. The Lord, the God of heaven, that he has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. The first of these uh, Persian paradoxes, if you will, is that Cyrus was a uh, polytheist, that he believed in many gods. He, in the culture in which he found himself, uh, especially in the Persian culture and, and pretty much Everyone in the ancient world at that time found themselves to be polytheists. They looked to and believed in and trusted not one God. They were not monotheists or monotheists. They were polytheists. They believed in many gods. But yet here is Cyrus. He is pointing to not many gods, not a God of a multitude, but he is pointing to the God. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven. And so this polytheistic ruler of the Persian world is looking to one God. And that is a paradox, if you will, uh, of the Persian kind. Secondly, is that what other people believed about Cyrus. Not only did Cyrus believe in many gods, but many people, his kingdom, believed him to be a deity of sorts. They believed the rulers in this, part, in this time in history to be uh, sometimes fully God and sometimes partly God's. And so they looked to Cyrus as he was a deity. So here is this deity in the eyes of his kingdom who is looking to another God. So he's not saying, look to me, look what I'm going to do. He is looking to the Lord of heaven and saying, he has given me this authority. He's given these kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to do something. A deity, a God would not say to his people that, hey, another God has told me to do something. So again, it's this Persian paradox. One, that what he believes, and two, others believe about him. And three, that Cyrus is recognizing that these kingdoms were given to him. They were not taken. As we know in the ancient world, these rulers, they would take over the surrounding areas, and they would take over the kingdoms that would become theirs. They would greatly grow their kingdoms and their areas of influence. But he is looking to the Lord, and he is saying, this has been given to me, not been taken. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So this Persian ruler, this this Cyrus, this Cyrus the Great, who should be seen as a god amongst his people, his tone is not what you would expect. It is the exact opposite of what you would expect. But this was not just some weak king in history. This was Cyrus the Great. He began the Persian Empire. 
that would be one of the greatest kingdoms to rule in the ancient world. But Cyrus was not just a pop-up Persian king. Uh, in fact, he was one who was prophesied. And so believe that uh, James took us here last week, but go with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 44. Well, have been a couple passages of Isaiah this morning. But Isaiah chapter 44 verse 28. This is written about 150 years before Cyrus comes on the scene. And Isaiah says, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes? Saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So this was in God's plan all along that he would use this king to do this specific task, to fulfill his purposes, because God has commands has command over all rulers. And it's not just the rulers of the ancient Near East. It's not just the rulers of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has command over all rulers throughout all time, throughout all of the world. And it's the same today, that God is in absolute control of all the world, including every leader within the world. You can go to Romans 13.1 that talks about all rulers, past, present, and future, are commanded by the Lord. Let's just turn there real quick to Romans 13.1, a verse that we look to uh, every now and then. It shouldn't be new to us, but Romans 13.1, we see this in our, in our more modern context. Makes a little more sense to us where it says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. No authority. There is no one who's ever assumed power throughout the history of mankind. There's no one who's in power today in 2023. And there's no one who will ever be in power except one who has been given that power from God. Because all authority is His. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's a bold claim from God's Word. And we believe in God's Word. So we see in Ezra, we see in Romans that God has command over all rulers. And that should bring us, as God's people, great comfort. That we are not at the mercy of merciless men. How many rulers throughout human history? How many rulers even today? How many rulers will still come into power who are merciless? Who are loveless? who only seek their own good. But we are not in the, at the mercy of merciless, merciless men. We are constantly in the care of a caring, sovereign, providential God. That is who is in control. And that should bring believers great comfort. That all things, all events in history, in the news today and in tomorrow's headlines, are working together for the glorious plan of God. Cyrus did not just come onto the scene and God had to figure out what's going on. It is clear that Cyrus was part of God's plan. God chose to use this king of Persia to bring about one of the greatest events in the Old Testament. And we'll just skip ahead right there to the last verse where the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem, where they returned home to rebuild the temple. God has command over rulers but before we move on from cyrus i think it's important to note that jesus is a better cyrus jesus is a better cyrus 
Cyrus is betrayed as one who has been given all the kingdoms of the earth, as we see there in verse 2. For the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth. It has this authority and all this earthly kingdom. This is Cyrus. And Cyrus the Great, he was the founder and the ruler of the Persian Empire, which was established in the 6th century. He ranges from some dates. He ran from, 50, from 559 to 530. We speculate because we don't know exactly when he was born, but we speculate he was around 60 or 70 years old, and especially for that time in history. He's a very old man. Today, that's not a very old man. Let's just be clear, okay? In those days. But under his leadership, the Persian Empire became one of the largest empires in history, spanning from parts of Eastern Europe and Central Asia to the Indus Valley, covering a vast part of the ancient world. Cyrus had a lot of power, a lot of authority. He had a lot of land, a lot of kingdom. But yet Jesus is a better Cyrus because Jesus has more, more authority, more power, more kingdom. For all kingdoms are his. But here's the thing about Cyrus. Cyrus had a clear beginning and a definitive end. We may not have in the history books when Cyrus was born. We may not have his birth certificate. But we know that he was born of man and woman. And we know that he had a definitive end. We know when his life was over. But Jesus does not, for he is the beginning and the end. He is the always has been and always will be. Cyrus had perceived authority over his kingdom, yet Jesus had actual authority, not just over his kingdom, but the entire universe. You can look at Matthew 28, 18, that says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. All authority. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So make no doubt, even though evil men rise into power throughout time, even though that our world may look in dismay, on a daily basis, it is the Lord, it is Jesus, who has ultimate authority and ultimate power and reigns supreme in the ancient world and in the modern one. God has a command over rulers. Secondly, we see that God issued a call to rebuild. So not only do we see this, this, uh, this um, command over Cyrus, the king of Persia, but we see that God has issued a call to rebuild. In verse 3, Whoever is among you of all of his people, May his, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So God issues this call for the people of God to rebuild the temple of God. This is a fulfillment, I told you it be in Isaiah twice, it's a fulfillment of, of Isaiah chapter 45. So go back, re, re, I can't, I can't speak. Real quick, Isaiah chapter 45, and you can look in verse 13. He says, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all of his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for, the pri not for price or reward, says the Lord. So he's using Cyrus to set the captives free, and it's not for bounty. It is because the Lord says so. 
And so God issues his call to rebuild the temple. And this is a fulfillment of, uh, of the prophetic word that has already been given of this time. None of this was a surprise. Even the, the, uh, the capture, the captivity of the people of Israel was no surprise. And now they're returned to Jerusalem. And their call to rebuild the temple is still no surprise. But why is this so important? Why is it so important to rebuild the temple? We're going to talk more about the, the rebuilding of the temple in the next couple of chapters. But a few things about the temple. The temple was at the center of worship. The temple was at the center of worship. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. I'm going to read a handful of verses here. So we're reminded about the importance of the temple of the Lord. Deuteronomy 12, first seven verses here. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their uh, Asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So the temple of the Lord was important because it was the center of worship. It was the center of worship, uh, which included sacrifice and the gathering of God's people. So this was the temple of God that he had them build, and it was the center of their worship to the Lord, their praise to the Lord, their sacrifice to the Lord. But also, not only was it the, the center of worship, it was the center of their Jewish culture. Go with me to uh, Psalm, Psalm 137. Psalm 137, first six verses here. So we see the temple is the center of worship. We also see the temple is the center of Jewish culture. Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord, this is a place that defined even the Jewish culture. When they were taken into, into captivity, they mourned that. They wanted to get back to Jerusalem. They wanted to get back and rebuild the temple of God that had been destroyed. It was the center of them as a people and as a nation. So the temple is the center of worship, is a simple center of the Jewish culture. And it was also the center of prophecy. When you go back to Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45, we see that this has been prophesied that it would be rebuilt. It would be restored. 
because the Lord had said it would be done so. And then lastly, the temple was at the center of God's presence. And this is what made the temple so special to the people of the Lord. This is what made it the center of worship. It's what made it the center of their culture. It's why the Lord prophesied that it would be rebuilt. It, it represented the presence of God. It held the Ark of the Covenant. It was the center, and the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And there wasn't even full access granted because it was the presence of God that people looked to. And when they saw the temple, they saw the Lord. When they entered the temple, they did so reverently as the priests came and offered their sacrifices for the people of God. It was here in this temple. And so God issued a call to rebuild this temple. And it couldn't be rebuilt until the people of God went from Babylon to Jerusalem. But here's the beauty. As we think about the fulfillment of Christ, the temple was, was wonderful. And the Lord used it. It had all these things to be true. But as we know, the temple's not going to last forever. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. And so where is our temple, temple now? Jesus is our temple Jesus is a better temple. Jesus is the center of our worship. When you go to what Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, he says this, Therefore God exalted him who is Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The Father, Jesus is our center of worship. If Jesus is not in the center of our worship, we are not worshiping the Lord God. He is the one who has been exalted. Secondly, Jesus is the center of our culture. When you look at Colossians 1.18, it says, And He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of everything. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy. So what should our culture look like as believers? What should, what should define us? It should be Christ and Him as the head of us as His people, as we'll see in just a moment, us as the remnant of God those who remain loyal and true to Him. So Jesus is the center of our worship. He's the center of our culture as believers. And thirdly, He is the center of all prophecies. And we talk about this often. Any prophecy that you go to in the Old Testament ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. I love this passage in Revelation 19.10. It says, At this I fell at the feet, at His feet to worship Him. But he said to me, and this was not Jesus, this was an angel. And he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. He says, worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. And that we believe, if you look at this language, that it says that the, ultimately the, the end of all prophecy is what bears testimony to Jesus. It is a spirit of prophecy that points to Jesus. All prophecy is fulfilled in Christ. And every one of those come true. Jesus is the center of all prophecies. He's the center of our culture. He's the center of our worship. And lastly, Jesus is the presence of God. For He is God. He is God. Matthew 1.23, simple passage that will be 
very much on our minds come December. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when you, we don't have to seek a physical temple to find the presence of God. We seek Christ because He is God. He is truly God and truly man. Where this temple was to a degree a mediator between God and man. Christ is that mediator. Jesus is a better temple. He was a better Cyrus. And lastly, not only has uh, God issued a call to rebuild the temple, but lastly, God provided His people a chance to return. He provided His people a chance to return. So let's look at His next uh, handful of verses here, four through uh, verse four specifically. It says, "And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold." with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So he has provided them a chance to return. He has freed them from Babylon through Cyrus and through his command, through his decree, through his prophecy. They are going to be released from Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. They are, have this uh, chance to return to the place that, in which they love. But there's two words of very particular interest in verse 4. The first one is survivor. He says, and let each survivor. And this wasn't saying that if you survive this transition, if you survive your way out of Babylon because it's going to be difficult and treacherous, that's not the picture we get. We get the picture that Cyrus is being used of the Lord to, to freely release the people of, of God. So what does it mean, this survivor? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to get a clear picture of what it means when he says survivor. Isaiah 10, starting in verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed in the midst of all of the earth. So when the, the people of God, when they were read this, this uh, book of Ezra, when they encountered this, the original audience, when they heard survivor, they would have thought about the remnant of God. Those who remain faithful to him. That the remnant, and going back to this promise from Isaiah that says the remnant will return. This biblical concept of remnant refers to those who remain faithful to God through difficulty and endure persecution. We see it all through the pages of the Old Testament and even the New Testament. And it's not always easy. Rarely is it easy. Is it ever even easy for the people of God? And these remnant, those who remain faithful to Him, those are the ones who are, who are belonging to the Lord. The remnant are those who, are, who faithfully endure. The remnant of God are those who faithfully endure. But, and this is so important, they are not God's people because they endure. 
They endure because they are God's people. So it's not if I do enough, if I can endure enough persecution, if I can do enough works, if I can do enough things, if I can just make it through this life, then I will be found faithful to be God's people. No, quite the opposite. Because we are God's people, He's faithful to us, and we endure because we are amongst the remnant. Romans 11. Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. As we talk about the remnant, and this is a, a great theme throughout Scripture. But briefly this moment, this morning, Romans 11, we'll just pick up there in the middle of this conversation that Paul is having to the church at Rome. And he says, so too at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. He's been talking about Israel, all of Israel. Now he's saying there's still a remnant. This is not just an Old Testament concept. This is not just even a concept in biblical times as we'll see it says so too at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace but if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace would no longer be grace and so the remnant of god we see that not all of israel are god's people this has never been the case there's always been those who look to the Lord in faith. Just because your, genealog- your genealogical record pointed back to Abraham did not mean that you were part of God's people. But those who look to the Lord in faith and trusted in Him and trusted in His provision were those who were the remnant of God. And so now in Ezra, he's saying, let this remnant, let each survivor, let each of those who are looking to the Lord as we'll see in verse 5, whose spirit has been stirred up by the Lord. Let you leave this place. Let you return to Jerusalem and build back what has been destroyed. The remnant returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, but they did so through God's provision, as we'll see in just a moment. They did not leave Babylon empty-handed. And there's that second word that's interesting in verse 4. It says, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is Jerusalem. It would have been enough, right, for God just to let the people out of Babylon and say, get back home. Get back home, catch a cab, do whatever you got to do, get back there and rebuild your life. But that's not what he did. This actually calls, calls to mind, to, especially to the original audience, and maybe to us as well, Exodus chapter 12. This is the second time that the Lord sends His people out, not empty-handed. When you go to Exodus chapter 12, verse 33, we'll just read these first few verses, but we're trying to get to 36 here. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." So just as they left Egypt from that captivity and went to the prom, on this long journey to the promised land, in the similar way, God is, is sending them out of captivity. He is sending them away from Babylon by His provision. So just as they plundered the Egyptians, they are plundering the Persians. 
here in Ezra chapter 1. Because God provides for his people. We sometimes use sovereignty and providence interchangeably, but they are actually two different words. They speak to two, two different aspects of God. His sovereignty is his absolute right, authority, and charge over all creation. He sits in the heavens and does as he pleases. As we often and maybe always talk about the sovereignty of God because it is the greatest comfort that a believer can know is that he is sovereign. But his providence is the outworking of his sovereignty in practical ways such as providing for his people and working out his purposes in the world for his glory and the good of his people. God's providence is his provision by his sovereignty. Because he is sovereign, because he is in control, because he has all authority, he can provide for his people in an unlimited number of ways. He could have sent them back to Jerusalem in all kinds of ways. He could, have, he could have laid waste the kingdom of Persia. He could have killed Cyrus and all of his kingdom, and they could have just walked back into Jerusalem. That's not how he chose to provide for his people. Instead, he said, give them all of these things, and we'll see an inventory here in just a moment. Because this is what God does. He providentially provides for his people. He is his providence. We see it working. He is bringing about his purposes by using Cyrus, the nation of Babylon, and his people to move back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. He provides everything that they need. Do you think when they started the journey that they had the feeling that you and I that you and I have whenever we leave? What do we always think whenever we leave the house on the trip, right? I forgot something. You check all the things. You check all, and inevitably, what do we always do? We forget something, and we show up to camp out with no tent, or we show up somewhere with no form of money, or we show up somewhere with no toothpaste, or whatever the story, right? But they did not show up empty-handed. They had everything they needed because it was the Lord who was planning this return back to Jerusalem. God always provides, and He always provides fully. Sometimes we may deceive ourselves. that God provides almost everything I need. No, He provides everything that we need. He provides everything I need in Christ. I just need this, this, and this. Christ is everything we need. He always provides and he always fully provides and his greatest provision has been in sending his son jesus christ as a sacrifice for our sin and the salvation of our souls this provision is for all who have looked at jesus in faith and repentance so jesus is a better provision he's not just a better cyrus he's not just a better temple jesus is a better provision so with this understanding, let's read the end of this passage again. They have been set up. We see God at work. We see Him sovereignly in control. We see Him providentially working. We see His command to His people, to these survivors, to the remnant of Israel. He's given everything they need. And then now in verse 5, Then they rose up, the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred. So there were no stragglers on this trip. There was no one else who kind of just snuck into the caravan. But those who the Lord called to go back, who He stirred in their spirit, they went up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. 
and all who were about them aided them with vessels. And here, here kind of starts the inventory of silver with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought up the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of their gods. And if you were with us back when we went through Daniel, we remember this, that we saw in his kind of vault room that he had all these things from the temple that were just sitting there as a trophy of his conquests. And so, and so Cyrus, king of Persia, he brought these out in the charge of Midrath and the, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. So just kind of get this visual scene for a moment. We're going to see there's 5,400 items. When was the last time you saw 5,400 items counted out? That's a lot of counting, right? And they're, they're exchanging all of these things, all of these, these treasures from the temple, all these treasures in gold and silver and, and costly wares from the Persians. There's this exchange happening before the people of God. Maybe it was lost on some of them, but maybe many of them really understood. They, they saw that God providing for them as a person's in hand, handed over in exchange to Judah all that they would need to restore their home and to make this journey back. And this was the number. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. And so this exchange is they're about to leave Babylon and go back to their home to rebuild the temple that God has called them to do. And here's this beautiful line at the end of chapter 1. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So just as God has promised, as he always fulfills his promises, he, he saves, he redeems, he restores the remnant of Israel. And they don't leave empty-handed. They leave with everything they need. So God doesn't just save us. He saves us. He keeps us. He sustains us. He provides for us everything that we need. And it's a good reminder because everything that we have currently is what you need right now if the Lord is yours and you are His. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to, to be in Ezra 1 and all the things that you have reminded us of this morning and pointed us to. And Lord, we thank you that ultimately that we could see Christ in this text. We can see him as a better Cyrus. We can see him as a better temple. and We can see him as a better provision. And Lord, there is one this morning who has never looked to Christ and know him as the great provider of all they need, Lord. May they look to Him this morning in faith and repentance. May those of us in this room who, who have been saved by the grace of Your Son Christ, Lord, may we be reminded this morning that all that we need has been provided for us in Christ. As we come to the table in just a moment, Lord, may we be reminded through this bread and this cup of the work of Jesus and His provision on the cross. And we respond to you in faith in these next few moments. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.